For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how a friendship between brewers on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border has been good for business. A roundtable talk on how Tucson Arts presenters survive and thrive during the hot summer months. And a profile of singer-songwriter David Bryan, founder of the band Loveland. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Five years ago, a Sonoran home brewer struck up a friendship with an established Arizona brewer, which helped him get his business off the ground. Now that informal partnership has grown into a serious cross-border collaboration that's helping both businesses to grow. From the Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, Mexico, here's Murphy Woodhouse with the story. In the cramped but functional second story of Hermosillo's Bukibichi Brewing, a large red paddle turns a steaming, savory mash. In a few weeks, it will be a fresh batch of one of the Hermosillo operation's signature brews, Sawaripa IPA. Damien Erro, Bukibichi's brewmaster, does his best to keep his sweat at bay in front of the heating mixture. He says the unique blend of malts and hops give it a compelling taste, one that has earned the up-and-coming business regional recognition. There's a vibrant homebrew scene in Hermosillo, but many enthusiasts are operating at the margins of the law when they sell their suds. Buki Beachy is essentially alone in operating its own brewery and taproom in full legal compliance. Because local microbrew expertise was limited, founder Luis Osuna said the advice Buki Beachy got early on from Tucson's Borderlands Brewery proved a big help. Us uh, meeting with uh, Borderlands really speaks a lot about the great sense of community that it is among brewers. Because it was just me going there to have a beer at the tap room and just the bartender put me in touch with Mike. The Mike is Borderlands president Mike Malazzi. He says early emails and meetings covered the basics of getting a brewery off the ground. How to work a relationship with your grain vendor, for example. You know, where to find the best equipment. Um, how do you secure loans, investor relations? I mean, the thing about opening a new brewery is that there's so many facets to it. But there were also some challenges unique to Sonora. For example, the necessary manufacturing license used to cost 40,000 US dollars, a sum that could break a new craft operation. Ozuna says some good, old-fashioned lobbying helped change Sonoran state law to bring that price down for him and fellow microbreweries. Uh, and then we, we went to the regular process of getting a, a municipal uh, permit, which was probably more painful and took longer than actually changing the law. Back at the tap room on a recent July weekend, Gabriel Retes and his wife Mary Molina are out celebrating her birthday. Retes has been a regular since the brewery opened two years ago and called its offerings the best in town. Here in, 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 in Hermosillo, in Sonora, in Baja California, everybody knows uh, artisanal beers. And every day uh, it gets more popular. And that's what Malasi and Osuna are banking on. 
This fall, the two businesses are rolling out a co-branded beer, which will be known as Luxero North of the Border and as Spring Breaker to the South. There's a punny term for that sort of project, a collab brew. With major expansions planned, both Bukibichi and Borderlands are eyeing their respective neighbor countries as promising markets for increased output. But the plan here is to have a constant flow of beer, of beer coming from Borderlands to Mexico. On the other side of the line, Borderlands has been inviting Bukibichi to Arizona craft beer competitions to help them get their name out and often has their beer on tap. Luis and I both see that crossing the international border is actually the most logical place to expand territory because there's a built-in market for it. It doesn't require as much shipping as it does to get to Albuquerque or San Diego or LA or Las Vegas. With trade tensions rising along the U.S.-Mexico border and around the world, Malazi says that cross-border beer can also serve as a refreshing trade ambassador. From Hermosillo, Mexico, I'm Murphy Woodhouse. In 2014, the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona reported on the local economic impact of the arts. It's estimated that the arts bring in as much as $87 million in annual revenue, and this sector also maintains more than 2,600 jobs. But with changing audiences and competition for tourism dollars, how can Tucson arts presenters best prepare and persevere during the hot summer months? To discuss... I'm joined by Yvonne Montoya, director of Safos Dance Theater, Michael Martinez, executive director of Live Theater Workshop, and Susan Clausen, managing artistic director of the Invisible Theater. The whole business model has changed. It used to be season tickets. People would commit for a whole season, which was fabulous because it, it gave us the seed money for every show. We still have an enormous amount. I mean, we have close to 500 season ticket holders, but that's less than when it was in the 90s. People are much more last minute, which makes it more difficult to plan. Like Tallulah Bankhead said, if you want to help the American theater, darling, don't be an actor. Be an audience. And I think that's, that's key. Using this year as an example, how many productions did Invisible Theater put on? We did six main stage productions, four in our space and two guests that came in. We also did two special events where we brought in Confessions of a Mormon Boy and we brought in Karat. It's wonderful about the immigrant experience. So we do those on smaller scale. We also have Project Pastime, which is for mentally and physically challenged young people, a project that focuses on ability rather than dwelling on disability. And that every spring we do a show called The Me Inside of Me. So we have first-class artists who go in and work with these students. It's public education at its best, at no cost to the school district. I write grants for that. Michael, outline Live Theater Workshop's uh, last year schedule, and tell us about the educational component, which I know is something that's very important to you there. 
Sure. We have, at any given time, four programs running simultaneously. We have a main stage program. We do nine of those a year. Uh, we have a family theater component. These are fairy tales. These are original scripts by local authors and musicians. We also have a late night series where we are doing theater that doesn't quite fit into the regular form. So we have local authors coming up with new definitions of what theater is and experimenting in the in the late nights. Those are at ten thirty at night. So it's a it's a coffee type show. Bring your coffee. <laughs> Uh, and then we have our education program, which we have after school weekend classes. These are classes where kids are coming in um, weekly to rehearse and produce a show and get the experience of being an actor, being a technician, working backstage. Uh, we do a lot of uh, work in schools as well. Susan mentioned that uh, some of the invisible theater work is grant driven. What about for Live Theater Workshop? Are, are you or someone else on the staff writing grants? I am writing grants. <laughs> I yeah. do a little bit of everything. Um, we, we have some wonderful support from the Arizona Commission on the Arts as well as the Tucson Arts Foundation. Um, but really a lot of uh, our support comes from our individual donors. Um, there's a lot of great people in Tucson who really appreciate how unique and artistic this community is and then end up supporting that with their, with their philanthropic dollars. So Yvonne, I know that your group is a little bit newer, a little younger than the two that we've spoken with. So give us an outline of what Safos's mission is and, and what you consider to be your performing arts season. I'm the founding director of Safos Dance Theater. We started in 2009, and for the first six years, we followed a more traditional artistic season for dance companies. Our season would begin um, August. In the fall, we'd have s smaller dance performances in the community or um, visual art programming. We'd go into schools. Um, with mural or, or dance workshops. And then in the springtime, we'd have our large self-produced um, annual show uh, that would either be something that's site-adaptive, site-specific, or in a theater. Um, in 2016, uh, we took a step back to look at uh, how we could have a larger impact on the field. And as a result of that year of kind of working with an advisory group, um, we decided to shift our programming. So what we've been doing the past two years is partnering with other organizations um, to produce larger events. This year, we partnered with Arizona Commission on the Arts again through AZ Artworker, Arizona State University, the Projecting All Voices, Phoenix uh, Hostel and Cultural Center, uh, the Western States Arts Federation, um, with money from the National Endowment for the Arts to uh host an inaugural Dance in the Desert, which is a gathering of Latinx dance makers. At the Community Interactive that Arizona Public Media hosted, um, one of the subjects that was floated there, and the reason why we're doing this discussion today, is the idea that arts companies are having to modify their schedules in order to make it through the summer for a variety of reasons. One of the largest and easiest to pinpoint is the way the population shifts in this city as we lose our snowbirds and we lose our college students. Is that time viewed by your arts company and from your perspective, is that a dry spell or can it be an oasis in terms of attracting and building an audience? Yvonne, let's start with you. I'm going to take it from the point of view of the artist. It's an oasis in terms of rejuvenation, rest, and relaxation. Um, <laughs> in general, we do not have any programming. It is our off-season. Um, it's very slow. It's a time for me to write some grants and final reports and play catch-up administratively. Uh, in the past, when we were doing our mural project in South Tucson, we would have some summer camps at no cost that were grant-funded. 
um, through either the Arts Foundation of Tucson, Southern Arizona, or um, Arizona Commission on the Arts. But this year, I'm anticipating another just off-season and kind of quiet. That's our MO for the summer. That's what we do in general, yes. We love the summer at Live Theater Workshop. It's uh, it's the hopping time for us when our, our camps are in the space and the kids are running around. We actually kick off all of our seasons in the summer. Um, our kids will be performing eight different shows this summer. We have three main stage shows, two family shows, and two late night shows. We are as busy as ever, and we really try to cater to those who don't want to leave Tucson or those who can't leave Tucson. and uh, <laughs> Those who shouldn't leave Tucson. And those who shouldn't. <laughs> now, Susan, Invisible Theater has pioneered the Sizzling Summer Sound Series, yeah. which is fun to say and fun to go to. It is. And that started a very long time ago, way back when our building had only evaporative cooling. It didn't have air conditioning, so that sort of let out the possibilities of doing anything in our building in the summer. And we started the idea of partnering with a commercial entity where people could have dinner, could do an adult cocktail, and see a show. And it was first at the Doubletree, and then it has evolved over the last decade where it's become really a cabaret series. And we're very excited. We're moving back downtown to uh, Downtown Kitchen and the Carriage House. And actually, that was the Oddfellows Hall there, where Downtown Kitchen was the first home of the Invisible Theater. Susan, can you please highlight a sacrifice that Invisible Theater has had to make in the last few years in terms of staying afloat, staying current with the economic flow? Well, I think that uh, financially, we've all had to tighten our belts certainly for Invisible Theater. And Theodore Bikel, who was president of Actors' Equity, our union, once said the greatest patrons to the arts are the artists themselves because we pay everybody, so it's we're not dependent for artists. We feel it's really crucially important to, to pay our artists. So our programming hasn't changed. We've cut down a little bit on the number of shows we build in the possibility of adding shows, you know, if the audience is there. Mm-hmm. But I think it's mainly, you know, salaries and all have remained flat. And again, as Michael said, the, the community is enormously generous. You know, it's why they say there's no business like show business, because the cost of making our product far exceeds the cost of what we sell it for. <laughs> Michael, tell us a little bit about sacrifices that live theater workshops had to make. We've actually been in a period of uh, the past 10 years of a lot of growth. Our programs have been expanding and we're outgrowing the little, we have a little 2,400 square foot space that we do everything on. Um, And so one of the sacrifices for us has been actually not being able to grow in a way that we would like to continue growing. Um, we've been renting space from high schools, um, from charter schools that are willing to, to share with us, um, just to offer the number of classes that we'd like to offer. Our donors have been growing as well. What happens with that is we, we start getting creative and busier and thinking of uh, what else we can do and what other fun uh, adventures we can have with, with that success. 
And the, the balance between growth and being a new organization and sacrifice, how has that worked out so far for you? Well, in terms of sacrifice, I think the biggest change was our shift in programming so young to go from that annual production that was very Tucson-based to these larger partnerships. We're casting a wider net to serve a larger region. I think in the long run, it's going to have a larger impact on the field of dance. And um, I think that moving forward, we're, we're making the right decision investing in these partnerships. Our roundtable panel members were Yvonne Montoya, director of Sophos Dance Theater, Michael Martinez, executive director of Live Theater Workshop, and Susan Clausen, managing artistic director of the Invisible Theater. Loveland is an ever-changing ensemble of some of the best musicians in Tucson, under the leadership of singer-songwriter David Bryan. Bryan is now living a life dedicated to music, after a long career traveling the Southwest, working in the mining industry. In February, producer Andrew Brown caught up with Bryan and spent time with Loveland as they went from rehearsal to a performance at Shea's Lounge on 4th Avenue. Along the way, Brown recorded some examples of David Bryan's wisdom and sense of humor, including a poem about a chicken. I've always sung. Uh, might not always been so good at it, but or very good at it, but uh, uh, it's just something I always wanted to do. When we started, I'd just see somebody say, hey, you want to play with us? I never would have dreamed. A lonely night could be so long But I sit and wait and listen to the radio And the hours keep dragging on And I love my singers. That's a new thing that we've just done in the last couple of years. I'm, I'm so pleased with them I could just... I could just die happy. And when you cross my mind, I'm a little inclined to wonder if you're working on the night shift too. Okay. <laughs> if you think about it too, the, the whole band built at that point also. All right. I'll try to do better. <laughs> Thanks. I think I might be on to something Nothing I've been looking for. I think it's safe to say I won't be looking anymore. You slit the dark and let the spark that set my heart aglow. I finally got a hold of you, and I'm not letting go. We had a, a hiatus where we didn't play much for a couple of years. Lost my voice. Uh, had just bad stuff in my throat. The breeze in the tree. That's it, I think. Okay. Yeah, I think that is it. I, yeah. So, yeah. I would rather do this in a higher key, but, <laughs> you know, that's just not going to happen tonight. Right. Yeah. It kind of bummed me out a little bit, you know, but I, I, can't, I can't stay bummed out about much of anything. Sometimes I'm just like a pitcher of water. 
that's been left on the table uncovered. I finally decided, to hell with it, I was just going to sing anyway. So we started trying to figure that out, and we dropped things like way low. To empty and wash me and fill me again, and whatever else she might do for me. Let's, yeah, let's figure out a thing. And now we're back in the same keys we used to be in. I, th I think my voice has pretty much come back. You learn a few tricks. I got my thermos full of tea here, which I love. I love my little thermos. I don't want to get too far away from it when I've got to sing. I'm just eating some jalapenos. I like them. I have hot sauce that I drink when I'm singing sometimes. Good for you, I heard. That was awesome. Yeah. Are they the whole boxes of vanilla porter? Yes. Oh my goodness. Hey, Brad. Damon, we've been doing this all day. I always liked having a lot of folks playing. We, we started doing that right quick, like. Who's the boss tonight? I got this idea that I want to get more women in with us. I made that a crusade. It's like, I am going to have women in Loveland. We need them. Women musicians in Tucson do not get the respect and recognition they deserve. I really love the group of people we're playing with now. Darling, just remember, there's another man that cares for you. They've learned a lot about how to play together in this band without interfering with each other. Can you hear everybody? This is probably cheaper than, than some people's fishing hobbies or, or bird hunting. I give them 50 bucks a show. And the band gets big sometimes, and it's like, well, digging pretty deep for this show, but that's all right. I love them, I respect them, I value their contribution. This is one of the best things I've ever done. Yeah, I wouldn't trade it for anything right now. I would just love it if they would just keep doing this without me.
Can you tell me the chicken poem? Yeah. All right. I wonder which came first, my dear, the chicken or the egg, said the fat, wealthy fella as he bit the chicken leg. Well, we had the egg this morning, said the fat, wealthy wife, and it was only late this evening that we took the chicken's life. You fail to get my meaning, said the fat, wealthy man. I'm talking about philosophy, don't you understand? But his fat, wealthy wife just said, you're way above my head. It don't matter anyway now that the chicken's dead. But the rich man had his question, and he wasn't satisfied. And he couldn't drive it from his mind no matter how he tried. It was the chicken. No, it had to be the egg was all that he could think. But his wife began to notice when their wealth began to shrink. She said, I'm sick and tired of this chicken and the egg. Start taking care of business or we'll soon be forced to beg but the rich man's mind was far away and he soon left on a quest to soothe his curiosity and lay his mind to rest. The rich man traveled through the land with his money in a sack, cold rain on his shoulders and a question on his back. The only answer he received as he traveled all around was that maybe in the ancient texts the answer could be found. So he strapped his question on his back most determinedly and climbed the mountain where he'd heard the ancient texts would be. He strode up to the monastery, and at the gate did roar, In the name of the chicken and the egg, open up this door. The guardians of the scrolls came down. The gate was opened wide. They took him where the ancient texts were hidden deep inside. They brought him on a pillar, and they all stared all agog at a 1967 Sears and Roebuck catalog. Everyone stopped breathing, and silence filled the room. A message from the time before the bomb created boom. But he turned and looked into the saddest eyes he'd ever seen. We just keep these ancient texts here, son. We don't know what they mean. He took his gold out of his sack and threw it on the floor, shouting, Answer me my question. You can have all this and more. But the oldest, wisest monk just said, It's time for you to go. Why don't you ask the chicken, son? The chicken's bound to know. So the fat, wealthy man was in the desert, dying of thirst, trying to find the chicken and ask it which was first. He was staggering toward a cactus when a 17-foot beak came down and knocked the rich, fat man clean into next week. Well, the end was rather merciful. The man was still knocked out when a 98-foot chicken dropped him in her baby's mouth. And the baby asked, Ma, which came first, the rich man or the poor? Her ma just said, Child, this one's dead. It don't matter anymore. That profile of Loveland founder David Bryan was produced by Andrew Brown, with sound by Galen McCaw. You can see an accompanying television story, a bonus live performance from Loveland, and meet the members of the band, on the Arizona Illustrated Facebook page and at azpm.org. Loveland will be performing this Saturday at 9 p.m. at La Cocina. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. 
AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.